This is Songwriter, a podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This is a special bonus episode of the show, which is a kind of hopeful way of admitting that I had some serious technical problems in recording this episode. The audio quality is not what I wish it was. To be honest, I considered not releasing this at all, but I'm such a huge fan of this week's writer, and the story and song written in response are so compelling and lovely that I wanted to share them, technical warts and all. One other note, this week's featured songwriter is San Diego's Cindy Lee Berryhill, and she inspired me to try something new in formatting the episode. Because Cindy's song is a sort of rambling Jack Elliott story song, which lines up beautifully with the three sections of the story, I thought it would be interesting to intersperse her verses within the reading. So what you're about to hear is a story with musical interludes. And now, today's story. I'm Jonathan Lethem. I'm a novelist and short story writer and essayist, probably in, in that order. Um, and I teach uh, creative writing at Pomona College and uh, do weird collaborations with, with people. <laughs> Jonathan is a best-selling author and a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. His novel, Motherless Brooklyn, was a winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and is currently becoming a major motion picture starring Edward Norton. The short story is called Vivian Ralph from the collection Men in Cartoons. Jonathan says the story is about the opposite of deja vu. You know, what's the opposite of deja vu is things that remind you of nothing. The feeling of having seen someone before is quite familiar, but when um, it turns out that the thing that they remind you of is that you once mistook each other for someone before, then it's kind of a like a hollow charade. You know, oh, you're that person who I don't know. Jonathan chose the story because of its internal music and the way a story can sometimes feel like a song. When I like my short stories most is when they remind me of pop songs, when they have that kind of uh, density, you know, and kind of a hook. They have an idea that's a hook, and this one always felt to me like it kind of had that hook. It's a song about negative energy between, you know, in, in the space of Jonathan reads the story live at Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena, California, and Cindy's performance of her song is from a house concert in San Diego a few days later. Vivian Ralph. Paper lanterns with candles inside, their flames capering in imperceptible breezes, marked the steps of the walkway. Shadow and laughter spilled from the house above, while music, shorn of all but its pulse, made its way like ground fog across the eucalyptus-strewn lawn. Doran and Top and Evie and Miranda drifted up the stairs, into throngs, smoking and kissing cheeks and elbowing one another on the porch and around the open front door. Doran saw the familiar girl there, just inside. He squinted and smiled at her to offer evidence he wasn't gawking. To convey what he felt, he recognized her. She blinked at him and parted her mouth slightly, then nipped her lower lip. Top and Evie and Miranda pushed inside the kitchen, fighting their way to the drinks, surely waiting on a counter or in the refrigerator, but Doran hung back. He pointed a finger at the familiar girl and moved nearer to her. She turned from her friends. The foyer was lit with strings of red plastic chili peppers. They drooped in waves from the molding, their glow blushing cheeks, foreheads, ears, teeth. 
I know you from somewhere, he said. I was just thinking the same thing, she said. You're one of Joran's friends? Joran who? Never mind, said Joran. This is supposed to be Joran's house, I thought. I, I don't know why I mentioned it since I don't know him or her. My friends brought me, said the girl. I don't even know whose party this is. I don't know if they know. My friends brought me too, said Doran. Wait, do you waitress at Elysian on Dunmarket? I don't live here, she said. I must know you from somewhere else. Definitely, he said. You look really familiar. They were yelling to be heard in the jostle of bodies inside the door. Doran gestured over their heads, outside. Do you want to go where we can talk? They turned the corner, stopped in a glade, just short of the deck, which was as full of revelers as the kitchen and foyer. They nestled in the darkness between pools of light and chatter. The girl had a drink, red wine in a plastic cup. Doran felt a little bare without anything. This will drive me crazy until I figure it out. Until I figure it out, he said. Where'd you go to college? Sunstrom, she said. I went to Vagary, he said. Doran swallowed the syllables, knowing it was a confession. I'm one of those vagary types. But, he said, I used to know a guy who went to Sunstrom. How old are you? 26, she said. Uh, 28, he said. You would have been there at the same time. But this was hardly a promising avenue. Still, he persisted. Gilly Noman, does that ring a bell? Sounds like a girl's name, she said. I know, he said. Never mind. Uh, where do you live? She mentioned a city. A place he'd never been. Well, that's no help, he said. How long have you lived there? Since college, she said. Five years, I guess. Where'd you grow up, he asked. The city she mentioned was another cipher, a destination never remotely considered. Lived there your whole life, he asked. Dora racked his brain, but he didn't know anyone from the place. Yeah, she said, a bit defensively. What about you? Right here, he said, right around here. Wait, this is ridiculous. You look so familiar. So do you, she said. She didn't seem too discouraged. Well, who are your friends here? Ben and Mallory, she said. You know them? No, he said. But do you maybe visit them often? First time. You didn't go to Camp Drewsmore, did you? Doran watched how his feelings about the girl changed, like light through a turned prism, as he tried to fit his bodily certainty of her familiarity into each proposed context. Summer camp, for instance, forced him to consider whether she'd witnessed ball-field humiliations, or kissed one of the older boys who were his idol men, he, in his innocence, not having yet kissed anyone. No. Camp Drewsmore in the mist? I didn't go to camp, she said. Okay, wait, forget camp. It must be something more innocent. What do you do? Until just now, I worked on Con Congressman Gosham's campaign. We lost. So I'm sort of between things. What do you do? Totally unrelated in every way, he said. I'm an artist's assistant. Heard of London Jerkins? No. Well, to describe it briefly, there's this bright purple zigzag in all his paintings, kind of a signature shape. I'm the one who paints it. He mined the movements, then the flourish at the end. 
By now I do it better than him. Do you travel a lot for the congressman thing? Not ever, she said. I basically designed his pamphlets and door hangers. Ah, he said, so our jobs aren't so different after all. But I don't have one now. She aped his zigzag flourish as punctuation. Hence, he said, you're crashing parties in distant cities which happen to be where I live. Hey, she said, you didn't even know whether Jorn was a girl or a guy. I was at least introduced to our host, though I didn't catch his name. He put up his hands, no slight intended. But where do I know you from, he said. I mean, no pressure, but this is mutual, right? You recognize me, too. I was sure when you walked in, she said. Now I'm not so sure. Yeah, he said, maybe you look a little less familiar yourself. In the grade of woods over the girl's shoulder, Doran sighted two pale copper orbs, flat as coins. A fox? A bunny? A raccoon? He motioned for the girl to turn and see, when at that moment, Top approached them from around the corner of the house. Doran's hand fell, words died on his lips. Tiny hands or feet scrabbled urgently in the underbrush, as though they were preparing a wash. The noise vanished. Top had his own cup of wine, half empty. Lipstick smudged on his cheek. Doran moved to wipe it off, but Top bobbed, ducking Doran's reach. He glared. Where'd you go? he asked Doran, only nodding his chin at the familiar girl. We were trying to figure out where we knew each other from, said Doran. Uh, this is my friend Top. I'm sorry, what's your name? Vivian, she said. Vivian Top. And I'm Doran. Hello, Vivian, said Top, curtly, raising his cup. To Doran, he said, you coming inside? Sure, in a minute. Top raised his eyebrows and said, sure. Anyway, we'll be there, me and Evie and Miranda. To Vivian, Top said, nice to meet you. He slipped around the corner again. Your friends are waiting for you, said Vivian. Sure, I guess, said Doran. Yours? It's not the same, she said. They're a couple. Ah, so they're letting you mingle, he suggested. I guess that's what you mean. Whereas yours are what, she said. Dates? Good question, said Doran. It's unclear, though. I, I have to admit there may be dates, but only maybe. Vivian what? Ralph, she said. Vivian Ralph, he said. Totally unfamiliar. I'm Doran Close, in case that triggers any recall. Doran felt irritable, reluctant to let go of it, possibly humiliated, in need of a drink. It doesn't, she said. Have we pretty much eliminated everything, he asked. I can't think of anything else, she said. So, we've never been in any of the same cities or schools or anything at the same time. He gave him a queasy earth-shifty sensation, as though he'd come through the door of the party wrong, on the wrong foot, planted a foot or flag on the wrong planet, one small step from the foyer, one giant plunge into the abyss. Nope, I don't think so, she said. You're not ever on television, he asked? Never, she said. So then, what's the basis of all this howling familiarity? I don't know if there really is any basis, she said, and anyway, I'm not feeling such howling familiarity anymore. Right, he said, me neither. 
This was now a matter of pure vertigo, cliffside terror. He didn't hold it against Vivian Ralph, though. She was his fellow sufferer. It was what they had in common. The only thing. You want to go back to your friends, she said. I guess so, he said. Don't feel bad, she said. I don't, lied Dora. Maybe I'll see you around. Very good then, less than familiar girl. I'll look forward to that. Doran offered his hand to shake, mocked pompously. He felt garbed in awkwardness. Vivian Ralph accepted his hand and they shook. She'd grown a little sulky herself at the last minute. Doran found Top and Evie and Miranda beyond the kitchen, in a room darkened and lit only by a string of Christmas lights, and cleared all but two, cleared of all but two enormous speakers, as though for dancing. No one danced. No one inhabited the room apart from the three of them. There was something petulant in choosing to shout over the music as they were doing. Who's your new friend? said Miranda. Nobody, said Dorna. I thought she was an old friend, actually. You sure you weren't just attracted to her? No, he said. It was a shock of recognition, of seeing someone completely familiar. The weird thing is, she had the same thing with me, I think. The language available to Dorna for describing his cataclysm was cloddish and dead. The words, a sequence of corpses, laid head to toe. Yeah, it's always mutual. What's that supposed to mean? said Doran. Nothing, nothing. Look around this party, said Doran. How many people could you say you've never been in a room together with before? That they didn't actually attend a lower grade in your high school, that you couldn't trace a link to their lives. That's what she and I just did. We're perfect strangers. Maybe you saw her on an airplane. Doran had no answer for this. He fell silent. Later that night, he saw her again, across two rooms, through the doorway. The party had grown. She was talking to someone new, a man, not her friends. He felt he still recognized her, but the sensation hung uselessly in a middle distance, suspended as in amber, in doubt so thick it was a form of certainty. She irked him. That was all he knew. Shadows and laughter from a party house Doran saw the girl there Just inside he squinted and smiled I know you from somewhere This'll drive me crazy till I figure it out Never been in the same city Two years before he saw the familiar girl again, 
at another party in the hills. They recognized one another immediately. I know you, she said, brightening. Yes, I know you too, but from where? The moment he said it, he recalled their conversation. <laughs> of course, he said. How could I forget? You're that girl I don't know. Oh, yeah. She seemed to grow immensely sad. They stood together, contemplating the privileges of their special relationship, its utter and proven vacancy. It's like when you start a book and then you realize you read it before, he said. You can't really remember anything ahead, only you know each line as it comes to you. No surprises to be found, you mean. She pointed at herself. Yeah, just a weird kind of pre... He searched for the word he meant. Pre-formatting? Pre-cognition? Pre-exhaustion? More like a stopped car on the highway slowing down traffic, she said. Seemingly uninterested in his ending, the unfinished word. Not a gaudy crash or anything. Just a cop waving you along, saying, nothing to see here. Doran, he said. Vivian, she said. I remember, he told her. You visiting your friends again? Yup. And before you ask, I have no idea whose party this is or what I'm doing here. Probably you are looking for me, he joked. I've got a boyfriend, she said. That line, it was always awkward in anyone's language. Then, before he could respond, she added, I'm only joking. <laughs> oh, he said. I just didn't want you thinking of me as Ben and Mallory's, oh, you know, sort of party accessory, the extra girl, the floater. No, he said, never the extra girl. You're the girl I don't know from anywhere. That's you. Funny to meet the girl you don't know twice, she said. When there are probably literally thousands of people, thousands of people you do know, or anyway could establish a connection with, who you never even meet once. I'm tempted to say small world, he said. Either that, she said, or we're very large people. No, he said, maybe we're evidence of the opposite. I'm thinking now, large world. We're not evidence of anything, said Vivian Bell. She shook his hand again. Enjoy the party. The next time was on an airplane. A coast-to-coast -coast flight. Doran sat in first class. Vivian Ralph trundled past him, headed deep into the tail. Carrion hugged to her chest. She didn't spot him. He mused on sending back champagne with a stewardess from the man in 3A. There was probably a really solid reason they didn't allow that. A hundred solid reasons. He didn't dwell on Vivian Ralph, watched a movie instead. Barbarian hordes were vanquished in waves of slaughter 20,000 feet above the plain. They spoke at the baggage carousel. She didn't seem overly surprised to see him there. As unrelated baggage mysteriously commingles in the dark belly of an airplane, only to be redistributed to its proper possessor in the glare of daylight on the luring metal belt, so you repeatedly graze my awareness in shunting through the dim portals of my life, he said. Doran Close. Vivian Ralph, she said, shaking his hand. But I suspect you knew that. Then you gather that I'm obsessed with you, he said. 
No, it's that nobody ever forgets my name, she said. It's just one of those that sticks in your head. Ah, he said. She stared at him oddly, waiting. He spotted beneath her sleeve the unmistakable laminated wristlet of a hospital stay, imprinted Ralph Vivian, room 315. <coughs> I propose we share a cab, but friends are waiting to pick me up in the white zone, he said. He jerked his thumb at the curb. The odds are, she said, were pointed in incompatible directions anyway. Ah, he said, if I've learned anything at all in this life, it's not to monkey with the odds. There was a commotion, some sort of clog at the mouth where baggage was disgorged. An impatient commuter clambered up to straddle the chugging belt. He rolled up suit sleeves and tugged the jammed suitcases out of the chute. The backlog tumbled loose, a miniature avalanche. Doran's suitcase was among those freed. Vivian Ralph still waited, peering into the hole as though at a distant horizon. <coughs> Doran, feeling giddy, left her there. All that week, between appointments with art collectors and gallerists, he spied for her in the museums and bistros of the vast metropolis, plagued by the ghost of certainty that he they come here to this far place, this neutral site, apart but together in order to forge some long-delayed truce or compact. The shrouded visages of the locals formed a kind of brick wall, an edifice which met his gaze everywhere, forehead, eyebrows, glasses, rim-drawn lips, cell phone, sandwich. Against this background, she had blazed like a sun, but never appeared. Oh, Vivian Ralph, oh, eclipse, oh, pale penumbra of my yearning, pink slip, Eviction notice, deleted icon, oh, stalked in alleys of my absent moons. There's nobody knows you better than I. Translucent, voracious, Ralph self, I vow here never again once to murk you with pallid tropes of familiarity or recognition. You, pure apparition, onion, veil of veils only. Coast to coast, she didn't 
low as Cook came with it. Yet they had to be negotiated for a time, deftly with a smile, before Doran could at last find himself seated. Seated beside the single woman, of course, but gratefully as well across from Polymus's wife, Vivian Ralph. He raised his glass to her, slightly, wishing to draw her nearer, wishing they could tip their heads together for murmuring. I used to think I'd keep running into you forever, he said. She only smiled. Her husband intruded from the end of the table, his voice commanding. What is it with you two? Irrationally, Polymus's own impatience seemed to encompass the years since Doran and Vivian's first meeting, that otherwise forgettable and forgotten party. Doran wondered if anyone else on the planet had reason to recall that vanished archipelago of fume, conversation, and disco, tonight or ever. The ancient party was like a radio signal dopplering through outer space, it seemed to him now. Did you fucking Viv? said Paulus, inquiring minds want to know. No, said Vivian Ralph Paulus. No, she said, but we were probably flirting. That was a long time ago. Paulus and his wife had captured the attention of the whole table, with evident mutual pleasure at doing so. Uh, we had this funny thing, Doran felt compelled to explain to the entire group. You remember, he said to Vivian, we didn't know anyone in common. You seemed really familiar, but we never met before. This drew a handful of polite laughs, cued principally by the word funny, and perhaps by Doran's jocular tone. Beneath it, he felt desperate. Vander Polymus only scowled. As for comic effect, he might scowl at an awkwardly hung painting, or at a critical notice with which he violently disagreed. What I remember, said Vivian, is you had these awful friends. They didn't hesitate to show that they found me a poor way for you to be spending your time. What was that tall, moody boy's name? Top, said Doran, only remembering it as he blurted it. He hadn't thought of Top for years, had in fact forgotten that Top was present at what he thought of as the Vivian Ralph party. Were you breaking up with some girl that night? Vivian asked. No, said Doran. Nothing like that, he actually couldn't remember. Because it looks to kill, she said. Those people mean nothing to me, Doran wished to cry. They barely did at the time. And now, what was it, ten years later, it was Vivian Ralph who mattered. Couldn't she see? Do you remember the airport, he asked. <laughs> ah, the airport, said Paulus, with a connoisseur's sarcasm. Now we're getting somewhere. Tell us about the airport. The table chuckled nervously, all in deference to their host. I haven't the faintest idea what he's talking about, my love, said Vivian. It's nothing, said Doran. I, I saw you at an airport once. He suddenly wished to diminish it in present company. He saw now that something precious was being taken from him in full view, a treasure he found in his possession only at the instant it was squandered. I wrote a poem to you once, Vivian Ralph, he said silently, behind a sip, a sip of excellent Rioja. Doran knew the wine was finer, much more interesting than the wine he brought. The Cabernet Frank, they sipped with their appetizers. 
He might have known Vivian Ralph better than anyone he actually knew, Doran thought now. Or anyway, he wanted to. It ought to mean the same thing. His soul creeped in irrelevant despair. This is boring, pronounced Vander Polymus. The dinner party rose up and swallowed them as it was meant to.
That was a song from Cindy Lee Berryhill written in response to a story from Jonathan Lethem called Vivian Ralph. For the show with Jonathan and Cindy, I wrote a song in response to Vivian Ralph as well, and Jonathan was kind enough to write it with me. If you want to hear it, you can go to songwriterpodcast.com or stream it wherever you get music. It'll be out on my album Perspective this week. Since we first recorded this, the movie based on Jonathan's book, Motherless Brooklyn, is out, starring Edward Norton. It's in theaters right now. And that was the final bonus episode of season one of Songwriter. I'm going to go away now for a couple of months and work on editing season two. I'm thrilled to say that season two will feature performances from Joyce Carol Oates, Suman Chanani, Malachi McCourt, Ben Salee, Sarah Jaffe, Tony Trishka, The Cave Twins, and many, many other extraordinary artists. Thanks so much to Josh and the team at Paste for their support of the first season of Songwriter. As before, you can get early access to the final bonus episode of Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Thanks also to Rob Reinhardt of Acoustic Cafe, who not only served as a counselor and unofficial executive producer on the show, but aired excerpts and songs on Acoustic Cafe on radio stations across America. Rob has been representing artists and lifting our voices and making us feel heard for more than 25 years, and I know that I speak for more than myself when I say thank you. And thank you for listening. It's been such a pleasure.